Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals, BetterHelp is here for you. It can offer a crucial assist. These are licensed professional counselors Get connected in under 24 hours. Talk in a safe online environment. Change counselors for free if necessary. This is a convenient, confidential, professional, affordable service. Whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. And best of all, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Okay. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Kathleen Rooney is the guest today. She has a new novel out on Penguin. It is called Cherami and Major Whittlesey. Cherami and Major Whittlesey. Kathleen Rooney. This is her second time on the show. She first appeared in episode 274 on May 4th, 2014. May the 4th be with you. Her other books include the national bestseller Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. And uh, another book called The Listening Room, a novel of Georgette and Lulu Magritte. A past recipient of the Ruth Lilly Fellowship from Poetry Magazine, Kathleen Rooney is the author of nine books in total, poetry fiction and nonfiction. And she's a founding editor of Rose Metal Press, a nonprofit publisher of literary work in hybrid genres. She's also a founding, memory, uh, founding member of Poems While You Wait which is a team of poets who compose commissioned poetry on demand. So Kathleen Rooney and I in conversation momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Red Hen Press. They are the publisher of Unseen City, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club selection for the month of September. Unseen City is by Amy Shearn. It's a multi-generational portrait of New York and the unexpected connections between a lonely Brooklyn librarian, a widower returning to his roots, and a ghost still lingering in a home that was once part of an activist-founded farming settlement. Best-selling author Kevin Baker calls Unseen City, quote, an absorbing read for all of those who love Brooklyn great writing 
and the Human Spirit, Unseen City by Amy Shern. Get 40% off of this book and your entire order for a limited time using the offer code OTHERPPL. Just go to https colon slash slash shop dot aer dot io slash red underscore hen underscore press. A listener named Isaac writes, Brad, hi, I just wanted to say that the blog is good and I'm really enjoying it. I'm reading Red Pill by Hari Kunzru right now and it's a very good companion to the blog. It's fantastic. I look forward to reading your novel someday. I've told you this before in a DM, but hearing you talk about you and your wife's struggle to have a kid has helped me a lot. Just hearing someone I admire talk about it. I mean, my wife has had more miscarriages than I want to count, but she's now pregnant with our second child. It's been a rough few years, but now I look around at this hell world we live in and I worry deeply. The air here in Portland is suffocating. Anyway, just wanted to say thanks. The blog speaks to me. I appreciate it. Signed, Isaac. Well, thank you, Isaac, and uh, congratulations on uh, number two. That's exciting. I wish you the best. And, yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think anybody with children right now is looking around at the state of things and, you know, worrying. At be- like, that's a, that's a kind way of putting it, you know. I try to keep the darkness at bay, but how can you not look around at what's happening, especially out here on the West Coast where you can't even breathe? <laughs> Like, it's just, what are we leaving to our kids? So we got to make it better. I don't know what else to say. I think it starts with the individual. I got to, I got to be better. I got to take action. I got to do something. And if I do that, then, you know, hopefully other people will. I don't have the answers, but I'm just going to focus on what I can control. As for the blog, and you know, for those of you listening, I announced this the past couple of episodes, but I'm going to be blogging between, you know, retroactive to September 8th, I believe, which was the Tuesday after Labor Day, all the way through Inauguration Day 2021. So that process is underway. I'm going to try to stick to it every single day. I'm going to not take a day off, Uh, I think I'm going to try not to take a day off between now and inauguration day. It's like a test of endurance or something. I'm going to subject myself to this and try to record my daily existence with candor between now and then. I just feel like there's a, I don't know, there's a story to tell. I want to keep track of what happens in these days because I feel like they're pivotal. I need a project. I need some sort of uh, enforcement mechanism to get me writing and to just get words on the page. Maybe a book will come of it. That's the idea. But I'm going to put it up. You can follow it if you want to read it. It's bradpocalypse.blogspot.com, bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. My guest today is Kathleen Rooney. Her new novel is called Share Me and Major Whittlesey. It's available from Penguin Books. This is Kathleen's second time on the program. I think I mentioned that a bit ago. She first appeared back in 2014, and I'm very pleased to have her back on the program. Here she is, folks. This is Kathleen Rooney, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Share Me and Major Whittlesey. So I, you know, it's in the author's note because I think it's really, really important to uh, give credit where it's due. And I think, you know, one of the things that authors always get asked at readings is, where did you get your idea? And I know some people find that question a little obvious or a little off-putting, but I, I kind of love that question because I think the origins of people's 
brainstorms are pretty fascinating. And so there was this student, Brian Michich, who was in a class that I taught back in 2013. Um, it's a class I've taught since then called Writer's Urban Walker. And it's kind of related to my first book, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, where we you know, talk about urban living and flannery and psychogeography. And I'm always, always, always telling my students to look things up. I think, you know, obviously reading teaches us a lot in a lot of ways, but one of my favorite ways and kind of the low hanging fruit is allusions. When you see a reference and you don't know what it is, but you Google or Wikipedia or whatever, and you figure it out. And so I'm always telling them, look it up. And so this student, Brian wrote a poem and he had this honestly kind of tossed off unimportant line that said, this was no share on me story. Look it up. And so for one thing, I thought it was hilarious that he was kind of like ribbing me in the poem and sort of quoting me back to myself. And for another, I was like, I will, I will look it up. And I did. And I just hopped on Wikipedia, like I want them to do. And I saw this story about share on me and the lost battalion that I had never heard before. And I consider myself a bit of a World War One armchair historian. And so I had kind of this humbling moment where I realized that I thought I knew a lot and there was still stuff I didn't know. And so to, to put it in a nutshell for listeners, um, this story is of the Lost Battalion, which is a group of World War One American army soldiers who in October of 1918, about a month before the war ended, were doing this massive advance in the Meuse-Argonne forest where everyone along the line was supposed to just fight forward until the last man dropped. And that was the order they were given. So they went forward with no rain gear, no food, no backup supplies, no water, because the idea was it would take a couple hours, they would all make it, and then they'd get resupplied. But of course, it didn't work out. And this one tiny group of soldiers led by a guy named Charles Whittlesey was the only one, like miles up and down along the line, who did it. And that's a bad thing. Being the only person who did it is bad because then they got stuck in this thing called the pocket, which means they were surrounded by the Germans on all sides and totally cut off. And so for five days they suffered and, and we can talk more about the specifics of that if we want to. But long story short, um, the only means of communication they had at that point were pigeons, messenger pigeons. And so Cherami is their last pigeon and she was the one that they sent up when they were in the middle of this ordeal and they were the victim of a friendly fire incident and Whittlesey needed to get the Americans to just stop killing their own soldiers. And so, you know, I spent like 10 minutes on that Wikipedia page and I knew I had to tell the story. And I was pretty sure at that point that it had to be partly first person pigeon. Okay. Right there in that, in that Wikipedia reading session, you knew all that. I did. I, I think part of it is because I, like, I've always sort of wanted to write a book about World War One, and I've always wanted to do an alternating point of view book, but I never wanted to do either thing just for the sake of doing it. Like, you know, what do I have to say about World War One that hasn't been said, sort of? You know, I, I didn't want to just write it. I wanted to wait till I had something to add. And I also didn't want to just set out with, like, a gimmick of, I'll do a wacky point of view and go back and forth with a more conventional point of view. I just, I, I thought that would seem a little strained. Um, and so, yeah, on that Wikipedia page, I think, I don't know, for me, creativity comes from outside and inside. And so I think Brian's little look it up, um, you know, kind of unlocked some stuff that was 
already in my head and gave me the project to do, you know, some of those aspirational things. At what point did you tell Brian, your student, that you were writing this book? Great question. I um, I tend to keep in touch with, you know, not all my students, but but many of them. If they're, you know, people who kind of are, are still, you know, after graduation, keeping a foot in reading and writing. And so he and I kept in touch. And as soon as I started really writing, because I spent a long time in the research phase and I don't start writing until usually I've researched for like at least a year. So, you know, I, I didn't right away tell him because I didn't know if there was anything to tell um, but within about a year, I wrote him. I just dropped him a quick email that said, like, hey, remember that poem? And remember that time you joked with me to look it up? I think I'm I'm writing a book. And he wrote back and he, he was just like, cool, keep me posted. And, you know, then we weren't really in touch. But what's funny is um, since the book's come out, I, I reached out again and was like, hey, the book's finished. Um, and he's a lawyer now in Chicago. And so he's not doing, you know, literary work, but he's still a huge reader and so I offered to send him a copy and I sent him a copy and um, so far he's loving it. I, that's what he said. I mean, I guess he's not going to tell me <laughs> to my face if he hates it, um, but he seems to sincerely like it. And so we've we've kind of reconnected and he's come to a couple of my events. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just cool to be like that close to I mean, my subject matter is from so far away from 100 years ago, but it's cool to have someone um, living who's kind of part of the inspiration. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I think that's kind of it's kind of crazy to think about how like a kind of a tossed off line in a poem can lead to this, you know, huge creative work and to be the person who plays that role, you know, it seems like almost nothing, but it can have a big impact. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think that's part of what I love about being a teacher. And I, you know, I don't know, I, uh, DePaul just started and I am so grateful um, that they have been, safe in the pandemic and almost everything at DePaul is online. And so I, from a public health standpoint, am very fortunate that I, I don't have to be someone who is kind of putting my life on the line to, to keep my job. But by the same token, it's bittersweet and I'm sad because I know we can't be in the classroom, but I really miss the classroom because I think, you know, it was in something that he wrote, but I'm not totally sure that it would have happened, you know, I wouldn't have been there, you know, saying, look it up 50 times a day. And, and that kind of magic, that kind of like you're in the contact zone, bumping into each other. I, I, I don't want to say that can only happen in person. I think that online teaching can be very effective and very rewarding. But I, I just am really thinking a lot about that right now, because I'm, you know, we started yesterday, and I miss it already. You're like, where am I going to get my idea for my next book? I can't be <laughs> yeah. interacting with these people. Totally. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's the last book. Too bad for me. <laughs> So why why are you so fascinated with World War One? I'm curious why this is like a particular area of interest for you. Yeah, I think it goes back to the fact that my dad was in the military. Um, when I was growing up, he was in first the Air Force Reserves, and then he swapped over to the Army Reserves. And so he would do, um, you know, various things for that, where, you know, he would do the normal like physical stuff, but he would also, I think, cause he, he's a pretty well-read, um, you know, amateur scholar kind of guy. He would take classes on military history and then eventually worked his way up to teaching them. They asked him to, to teach some of this stuff. And he said, yes, because he's kind of a natural teacher, even though that's not his, his official profession. And so 
when he was teaching these military history classes, he would have these books all over the place and, you know, it'd be like on the kitchen table and we'd sort of come up and be like, what are you studying? What's this? What are you teaching? And I mean, he taught all kinds of stuff, you know, like Civil War, World War II. Um, but of course, he covered World War One, And for whatever reason, that was the one that even as a child, I was obsessed with. And I think it's because it's such a futile and confusing war, which I'm I'm pretty nonviolent and pretty anti-war, and I know there's people who think that's quixotic and even stupid, but I, I really am anti-war in pretty much every case. Um, but I think because of that, World War One resonated with me because, you know, in other wars, you can kind of make the case, certainly like, okay, World War Two, we like, quote unquote, had to do it. And we can point to reasons. We can say, this is why it happened. This is why it had to stop. But World War One, even the people who've made like a profession of studying it have a hard time boiling it down to, okay, here's why it happened and here's what was good about it or here's what was gained. It was just this like miasma of slaughter that just began and ended and didn't seem to have any purpose. I mean, 20 million people, 10 million civilians and 10 million soldiers were killed. And nowadays I think most people don't think about it at all. So that there was part of that. I just, I liked that it, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's that bias thing where we appreciate stuff that confirms, right. Confirmation bias, what we already want to know. So I was like, Oh, I hate war. This is a war that's really hateable. Excellent. (laughs) Um, You know, but beyond that, like when my dad was telling me how they, like how they fought it, like I remember he wrote this essay and he, he sent, resent it to me and it's really good um you know now that i'm a college professor i'm like a plus dad um but he had to write this paper on machine guns and uh, you know i think that kind of boils down to my interest in it in that you were and this is not an original observation but like world war one is a war that was fought in the 20th century with hugely advanced technological leaps but it was fought with a 19th century mindset so in the case of the machine gun you had this gun that was a killing machine unlike any other that was just like so efficient and taking the lives of the people it was used against but you still had these armies who believed that wars wouldn't be won with equipment they would be won with training and breeding and abstract qualities. So you still had the British, you know, a lot of it was colonialism and racism. Like even though they had used it in things like the Boer War, there were literally British leaders who were saying like, oh, the machine gun will work on third world inferior colonial subjects, but it won't work against the British because we have so much honor and we have so much courage. And of course, they were catastrophically wrong. So I think there's just so many things like that that are just so like tragic and hubristic and fascinating about World War One. Yeah, I feel, uh, you know, maybe not quite at the level of depth that you were operating at, but I feel a similar interest in World War One, maybe simply because it was the first industrial scale war where you had these, you know, killing machines that could wipe out a thousand people and two minutes or whatever and yeah i also think uh, there's something just particularly hellish and brutal about the trench warfare like whatever i've seen in archival footage and photographs and i'm thinking of the kubrick movies uh, paths of glory now which i think depicts uh, 
you know, war in the trenches really well. And then of, of course, like reading all those lost generation books and all that kind of stuff. It's just, yeah. I don't know that there's something fascinating about humanity, fascinating and like really grim and sad about humanity making this transition into a style of warfare that, you know, could wipe out so many people so quickly and just so brutally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, even uh, like the fact that there's so many traces of trench warfare and things like that in our language now, like, you know, you're in the trenches or like you're going over the top or you're in no man's land. I think, you know, even people who perhaps unlike you or I don't know that much about it, like don't realize the extent to which it sort of transformed even like our metaphorical understanding of the day to day world. Yeah. And, you know, your book also evoked for me. Um, because of the, you know, because of the whole angle that it takes and the the narration, um, you know, that gets inside the gets inside the mind of a pigeon. I was uh, I have another film reference that it, it drew to mind for me, which is uh, Terrence Malick, who yeah. in our film uh, history is one of the very few directors, and and does it in the context of a war film. I'm thinking of the Thin Red Line. Where, but he does this in his other films too, where he sort of, uh, what's the word, juxtaposes human insanity against the animal world repeatedly and against the natural world in general. You know, it's nature. He cuts away to these nature shots. I'm thinking of the thin red line where, you know, human beings are butchering each other in the Pacific theater in World War II, and suddenly he cuts away to like a sloth or something hanging in a yeah. tree, like being like, what the fuck? <laughs> you yeah. Know? Um, and I think there's some element of that at work in your book where, you know, we we get so caught up in our crazy human business that we forget about animals. And I'm a I'm a sucker for animals. I've been a vegetarian for my whole adult life. Like you, you don't have to, like, win me over to the cause of animals. But I love it when whenever anybody pays homage to the fact that these are, uh, you know, these are creatures uh, with their own kinds of sophistication and genius and um they have every bit as much right to life as i do in my opinion and so uh, i have a you know a real sense of affinity for that choice and the fact that you were willing to go all the way in in service of these like heroic birds you know thank you yeah that i mean that means a lot and i really appreciate it because i think uh, you know per the the sort of comment at the beginning of, of sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this for the whole book. Like I, I knew it early on, but I also knew that in choosing to do only half the book from a human point of view, and then half the book from Sharonese's point of view, that I would lose some readers potentially, or that I would risk people mm, like rolling their eyes or, you know, assuming that it was going to be some kind of cartoonish like me, a pigeon, me no understand war. Um, and I tried really hard to not do that, but to sort of create Sherami. I mean, I anthropomorphize her, of course, because, you know, you can't sustain like a 300 page book if you're not doing probably something um, a little familiar and a little intelligible. But I still wanted to retain that strangeness, sort of like you're saying, like the sloth having that like WTF moment. Um, of, you know, she's with humans and she's been raised by humans, right? Because pigeons and humans for thousands of years were extremely closely linked. And so she's she's an animal who's wild, but also domesticated. And so she would have that affection for people, but she would also have those moments of bewilderment where she couldn't figure out why 
the people she was with were conducting themselves in these apparently violent, self-destructive, illogical ways. Yeah, you know, there's a great fact sheet that you sent me, um, you know, a while back and it, when, when we were talking over email. And it's a, it's a basically like all about pigeons. And, yes. Uh, you know, there's a lot that I didn't know. Like most of it I didn't know about how sophisticated these birds are and what a role they have played um, in relationship to human endeavor through the centuries. But then there's also this sort of prejudicial attitude that human beings in contemporary times have developed towards pigeons, especially those of us who live in urban environments. And I got to be honest, I, I, saw, I, I don't know if I've ever gotten super hardcore about it. I think I might have been affected by it a little bit, just thinking of them as dirty or something. But they had, you know, the whole rats with wings thing and how pigeons are somehow a nuisance and, you know, all this different stuff. Uh, I hope it makes you feel good to know that you've completely turned me around on that. I'm like, I'm obsessed with pigeons and I, I feel like it was a mistake to ever think poorly of them in any way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. It does make me happy. I, you know, I think good fiction, you know, doesn't need to be too agenda driven and you don't want to get preachy, but I did really, really hope that, um, without doing any of that, I would just by letting readers spend so much time in close proximity with pigeons and like truly looking through the pigeons eyes, they would come away with like a greater understanding. And I think, you know, I live in Chicago and we have so many great pigeons. I mean, there's just so many. And I do know that a lot of people, like you said, a lot of urban dwellers find them a pest. And I think some of that is just because they're so prolific. And I think pigeons are in a way like a victim of their own success. Like what I think a lot of people don't understand is that pigeons and doves are all descended from rock doves. Um, and they were originally wild animals. But you know, like you're saying, over these 1000s of years, people took them in and, and lived with them. And it was for everything from food, like I'm a vegetarian, too, since I was 15. And so the thought of eating pigeons is you know, beyond repulsive <laughs> to me, but, you know, people ate pigeons forever. They still eat it. Squab, like I was in Scotland last year and pigeon was like all over the menus and that was a little tough for me to take, um, you know, so for food and then also for um, companionship, for racing, for message sending. And so all the pigeons that you see in cities today, you know, whether you find them annoying or cute are here because we're here. They're, they're wild pigeons that were domesticated that escaped and went feral. And so I think just even remembering that is kind of interesting because I think also pigeons are a lot like humans in that they can live, you know, for better or worse, they can live anywhere. They don't migrate. They can eat almost anything. And I think in that regard, they resemble us. And I think whether we know it or not, sometimes that gets disturbing. So I think sometimes when we're like, oh, there's so many of them, or they're dirty, or they won't stop having babies, it's like, well, maybe you could like take the word pigeon out and put human in and, and most of it would be kind of like, interesting to talk about. <laughs> right? We're filthy, yeah. and we won't stop reproducing. That's about <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we eat garbage. It's all there. It's all there. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, you know, in terms of pigeons, a bit like their homing ability, which is pretty incredible. Um, I'm imagining, yeah. you know, you did a, b- a bunch of research into that. Like, it's one of those things that I sort of know in a passing way. Like, oh, yeah, pigeons have this homing ability. I know there's like carrier pigeons and messenger pigeons or whatever. But like, you talk about like how human beings came to work with pigeons in this way and how you train a pigeon to do this stuff. Yeah, definitely. That was um, one of my favorite things uh, about writing this book was just getting to know all the pigeon stuff. And so I think, you know, one of the things that was one of my jumping off points, I, I kind of forgotten, you know, I was raised Catholic and I learned all the Bible stories. And of course, there's Noah's Ark. And I think, you know, most of us who studied that remember, or, you know, if we didn't study that, we we kind of vaguely know that supposedly, according to the Old Testament, you know, Noah went through the flood and then, you know, the rain stopped after 40 days and he needed to figure out where land was and he sent a dove. Um, But going back in my research, I discovered that he'd actually, the, the whole story is that he sent a raven first and the raven just didn't come back. The raven was kind of like, woohoo, land, this is over, I'm, I'm out. And so Noah had to send a dove subsequent to the raven, and the dove came back. And, you know, that story, I think, typifies this connection and this fidelity that, you know, people have to pigeons and have admired in pigeons. And so, you know, pigeons are pretty easy to domesticate. Like most animals, it's a it's a matter of food, you know, just to be real, like the, the easiest way to domesticate an animal is to become its source of sustenance. Um, but once you do that, pigeons do seem to really like people to have, you know, kind of like dolphins or dogs, they have this natural curiosity about people. Um, and what's hilarious to me is I didn't know this till my book came out, but my dad raised pigeons when he was a kid, like back in the sixties, growing up in Nebraska as a boy scout, he had homing pigeons and he, he corroborated a lot of the stuff that I learned, which is like, they have really good vision. They have a really good sense of smell, but the most important thing when you're training them is your voice. They, they love to hear the voice of their trainer And, you know, so you always just want to talk to them and that's how they'll, you know, come back to you specifically. Um, And then beyond that, it's kind of this matter of um, making sure they love their home, making sure they know their home and then they can find it. So you just start gradually releasing them. You know, you take them out a mile, then you take them out five miles, then you take them out 10 miles. And then, you know, if you're someone who's doing it in a more serious way, they can do hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. And what I what I kind of love is even in all my research, um, you know, like Caesar used them in the conquest of Gaul to carry messages. Um, the Greeks used them to carry the results of the Olympic Games. Genghis Khan set up a pigeon post so he could communicate from Asia to Eastern Europe. 
Um, you know, all, all this stuff is true and, and people have known how to do this for centuries, but even today, like biologists are not a hundred percent sure how pigeons do it. They think it's a combination of, you know, of sight, of smell. Pigeons have a really hard time homing at night. So vision is a key component. Um, they also think there might be some sort of like magnetic situation happening in their beaks that relates to the earth's poles. But at the end of the day, it's still kind of mysterious, which I sort of like. I, I like that we don't totally know how they do it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. They're amazing. And they're, I'm thinking like this is how you used to text people. You had to have a pigeon. Yes. Yes, I think we should bring it back because the pigeon won't let you, you know, you can't like doom scroll a pigeon. The pigeon doesn't have annoying notifications. You know, the pigeon isn't made of like disgusting materials that are mined from the earth and like assembled by slave labor. You know, it's, right. a, it's a better text. Right. I'm thinking for some reason, as you were talking, I was thinking of Mike Tyson. Didn't Mike Tyson used yes. to, he raised pigeons. He did. Yeah. He still loves pigeons. He's a, he's a big pigeon fancier. He, um, you know, in a lot of the profiles, that's like one of the things that's sort of like the contradiction of his personality is he's that, you know, kind of killer in the ring, but he's so sweet and affectionate with his with his birds. Yeah, I know. I, I find him to be like an endlessly fascinating figure. Yes. Who, like I, I connect with him at a heart level. I know he's <laughs> I know he's troubled and I know, yes. you know, like I don't mean to um, deify him. You know, he's done yes. some things that are questionable, to say the least, in his life. But um, he also can't, you know comes from this incredibly difficult uh, and abusive childhood and was totally. just sort of on his own. And so whenever they show him, especially like the archival, you know, childhood stuff where he's like, like his only friends are the pigeons and shit, it breaks yeah. my heart. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. Um, so I want to talk about Whittlesey. Am I pronouncing that right, Whittlesey? Yes, you are, yep. Mm -hmm. um, because this is the other... Uh, major figure in your book and you know again like there's so much news to me like I was not aware of Charles Whittlesey and uh, I'm imagining you were not either was that somebody who was on your radar yeah no I wasn't at all and I think you know I that was kind of that moment of humility where I again as this like I know a lot about World War One. I. I was like I do not know about Cher Ami and I do not know about Whittlesey and then when I started um you know, because it's impossible. You can't learn about Jeremy without learning about him to some extent. And I found him equally as fascinating as as Jeremy was, honestly. Yeah. Why don't you talk uh, just for people listening to give kind of a broad strokes overview of who Whittlesey? I mean, Whittlesey was l the leader of the Lost Battalion. Yeah. This, this group of sold of American soldiers that was um, in the pocket or whatever in the in yeah. the forest surrounded by Germans in World War One. Yeah, so Whittlesey, I think the thing that drew me to him as a fictional character, you know, was this this real life personality he had where he was sort of the last person anyone would expect to be a quote unquote hero. And he, you know, he came from Wisconsin. He was, you know, from way, way up by like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And then his family moved when he was, you know, in late childhood to Western Massachusetts. And he sort of you know, grew up always loving the woods and kind of having this dreamy, poetic nature. And then he went to Williams College out in Western Massachusetts. And then he went to Harvard for law school and he became a Wall Street lawyer. He was one of these people who just had a head for detail and for contracts and minutia and stuff that I think a lot of people would find honestly pretty 
boring. Um, but he just, he loved it and was quite good at it. And then, you know, World War One broke out and he signed up. First, he, he took this officer training course, which surprised his friends because he had actually in college, um, he was like roommates with Max Eastman, who, you know, the famous socialist, and he had his own sort of socialist period, and he was kind of a pacifist for a while. But, you know, as the war went on, he he kind of felt like he needed to get involved. And so he chose to, he wasn't, you know, even though a lot of the, the privates and, and men below him were draftees who, who were not there by choice, he elected to do it. And I thought that was interesting. And then I think another thing that drew me to him was just as soon as I started researching, it became pretty clear to me that he was probably gay. And, you know, he was, you hate to even say closeted because it was just, it was not even a question at the time. Like it was just not safe to be out, even though there were these like thriving queer subcultures. So, you know, you could live this active life, but you just couldn't announce it like you could now. And I, you know, people always want to know, like, do I know for sure that he was gay? And I can't prove it. He was an extremely private person. He did not leave a diary. He did not leave um, a journal. But there was all this stuff in the coverage that euphemistically was pretty apparent, like, you know, that he never had time for the ladies, that he was a confirmed bachelor. And, you know, this will be a spoiler. So if anybody, you know, is listening and really the book's not a thriller, but if you really don't want to know what happened, um, you know, Whittlesey kills himself as a result of of the PTSD and the, the trauma of the war. And in one of his nine meticulous suicide notes, he writes to his best friend, um, just a note to say goodbye. I am a misfit by nature and by training. And to refer to oneself in that way was was absolutely, you know, in 1921, a way to indicate that you were gay. And so I think, you know, there was some gender confusion with Cher Ami. They thought she was a male bird until they stuffed her and put her in the Smithsonian when they realized she was female. And I found it really, really interesting that it was pretty clear to me that Whittlesey was probably gay, but in most of the coverage, that wasn't touched on. And I think both of those things have a lot to do with, even still in 2020, these ideas of who we consider a hero and what we consider masculine and what we consider feminine and what we consider typical behaviors. And so I I really was drawn to that in both characters. I mean, it adds dimension, you know, like what a great character and what a sympathetic character and a tragic character. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think he like Whittlesey is utterly tragic. And I think I hope that I've depicted his tragedy, um, you know, not not that he's like a, a tragic gay man, but that he's a tragic person who was a hero and then couldn't recuperate his life. And I think that's one of the things that I knew I really wanted to write from his perspective was, you know, his life before the war was so peaceful. And then in the war, it turned out that he was an amazing leader. Like this is one of these things that I think people just can't know about themselves until they're in the situation, right? You don't know what you're going to do in the trenches till you're in the trenches. And plenty of people who, who were, you know, really brave in their daily lives were just not functional in the war situation. And you can understand that. But for whatever reason, everyone just remarked about how calm Whittlesey was and how, I mean, he was six foot three, which was super tall for the time. And they said that he just never ducked. He never flinched. Like he just would stand tall. And as a result, his men loved him. Like at first they thought he was going to be this 
egg-headed Harvard snob and, you know, to a person, all the survivors just said what a great commanding officer he was. And so I think, you know, the real tragedy is that he, he turned out to be good at this really specific and really miserable thing. And then when he tried to go back to New York, he, he did really think he was going to be able to just go back to Wall Street, be a lawyer, resume his life. And because he was a hero, it wasn't possible. I mean, he'd been so covered in the media Nobody knows about who he is now, but like he couldn't walk down the street without getting recognized. Like people kept coming to his office, asking him for favors, you know, do a speech, give a talk, do this thing for the American Legion, come to the Red Cross. And he had such survivor's guilt that he he just wouldn't say no. And, you know, I think after three years of that, he just realized he couldn't go on. And so he took his own life. Wow. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 doing some armchair psychology as I'm listening to you trying to figure out why he was so effective as a military leader. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the context, you know, living in that time as um, a gay man, uh, we assume. And the level of psychological and emotional control that you would have to maintain just to exist in the world um, in that way where you don't want people to know your true identity, you know, and you, you don't maybe even want yourself to know it or something. And I can see a, I can see a corollary or I can see a line of connection between those two circumstances. Did did that, that occur to you? Like, writing? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, what I tried to do in, in writing him as a character, both as sort of a, a leader and as just like a person is that kind of, you know, for lack of a a better word, it it sounds sort of cliche, but like a double life and this need to not just act, but to watch yourself acting and to always be very, very aware of what you needed to do. And then the fact that other people were going to be watching and judging you do it. And I think he would have cultivated that as a gay person in a society that definitely would not just accept that and then also as a leader and i think you know in in some of the research you kind of got the sense like his second in command george mcmurtry you know would kind of comment to this effect of how you know mcmurtry pointed out that during the pocket which was just this five nightmarish day situation um when he was awake and when he was out talking among the men he was whittlesey you know, was unfailingly encouraging, unfailingly upbeat, kept saying, like, just a little more time, we're going to get rescued, we can't surrender, you know, we're going to be okay, like, just keep it up, don't give up. But at night, you know, when he would go to sleep, no one knew except McMurtry, who was right there, he would cry in his sleep. And so that was going somewhere. And I think that was one of the things that was fascinating is that that nobody knew you know, what was going on beneath his surface in a lot of ways. And I think it was just, that's one of the things that made me admire him so much is kind of through this decision and this sheer force of will, he kind of seemed to just make himself be this kind of leader, which I think is really impressive. You know, another thing that your book speaks to and that the life of Charles Whittlesey speaks to is the notion of the returning soldier, the traumatized soldier. Um, It's an exploration of what war does to human beings. And for those of us who have not experienced it, which is most of us, it can be hard, I think, to understand 
and I think that you know there's this trope that shows up in media, whether it's a journalistic report of a soldier returning or it's something you see in the movies, like I'm thinking of the deer hunter or whatever it is, you know, where you have traumatized soldiers who are back from war and can't relate to straight life, you know, like the normal human existence and who don't feel any sense of genuine empathy from people who remain back home and for whom they fought and all that kind of stuff. And there's a phrase I want to say that either appeared in your book or appeared in some of the media around your book, which is the pressure of being a hero. Yeah. And there's a part of me that I think in a, in a reflexive, unthoughtful way might respond to that by being like, what do you mean the pressure of being a hero? Don't you want to be a hero? Like you're a hero. You return. Everybody wants to celebrate you. What's wrong with that? But there is something wrong with that. Yes. Um, I think, you know, it's so hard to know anybody and it's so hard to get inside the mind of anybody else or really understand their lived experience. But I appreciate your book and I appreciate the ability to consider what it might be like to actually go through that, to actually go through something as hellish and brutal and inhumane as war, especially World War One, which seemed to be sort of extra uh, in that sense, just because yeah. of the, I don't know, just there's just something extra horrific about it somehow, in my at least in my imagination. Uh, yes. but, but then to return home and, you know, to have all these people clapping for you or to be to have people even just having normal conversations around you and yeah. to have no sense of relation to that, no sense of connection, like how isolating that must feel. Um, I don't know. I'm rambling, but do you see what I'm yeah. getting at? No, totally. And I, I'm glad that you, you know, gravitated toward that part of the book because that's like a huge, you know, I hope I wrote an anti-war book and I think that's part of, you know, if it works on that level, that's part of why. And I think, you know, to speak to that kind of pressure of being a hero or like the claustrophobia of fame, I think, you know, of course, like being a hero, that's exciting, Um, you know, and and we're taught that as outsiders. But I think what I've come to realize, you know, in the study of war is that heroes are never um, truly represented with like three dimensions and with nuance. They're, you know, they're basically monuments, right? The book starts, you know, monuments matter most to pigeons and soldiers. And so when you become a hero, you lose control, right? A hero is not something that you can self-identify as. It's not something you can just wake up and be like, okay, guys, today I'm a hero. It's something that's imposed on you from outside. And yes, of course, I, I do believe that Whittlesey and Jeremy were heroes, and I'm not diminishing the like astonishing bravery with which they both conducted themselves. I consider them both quite heroic. But I think the problem with heroes is that once you're a hero, you're not really a person anymore. And people don't sort of want to hear from you in a sophisticated way. They kind of want to be like, okay, you're Charles Whittlesey, you're a hero, thanks, next. And, you know, to to make that, which might seem a little abstract, more specific, like, you know, one of the biggest reasons he became a hero is that in the pocket, um, after the friendly fire incident, when they were just really on their last legs, just suffering indescribably, uh, the Germans 
sent a couple of soldiers who had deserted, right? A couple of his American soldiers just gave up and deserted. So the Germans caught them and sent them back with a surrender request. And it was a note that basically said, you know, we can hear you guys, we can, we can smell you, we can hear you, you're moaning, you're gross, why don't you just surrender? And Whittlesey knew at this point that they could not do that, that, you know, for one thing, it was no guarantee of safety, they could still all be killed anyway. So surrender wasn't like a safe option. But also that if they surrendered, everything they'd done and everything they'd been to would not have the meaning it would if they held out. And he didn't know it at the time, but the media had gotten a hold of this case. And, you know, if they had surrendered, it would have been catastrophic to morale because everyone was obsessed with the lost battalion. And so to the surrender order, he said nothing. He just ignored it. He just was like, screw that. I'm not surrendering. But in the lore of the lost battalion, some reporter made up that he said, go to hell. What, what probably happened is some general was asked, you know, afterwards, like, well, what did Whittlesey say when they asked him to surrender? And, you know, the general was like, well, I imagine he told him to go to hell. And that became attributed to Whittlesey, which is like, as hopefully you can tell from how I've described him, is just not, he's not a go to hell kind of guy, like that he's a classy dude who would never say that. But that's who he was. And so he came back and everyone, you know, he was in New York again, and he got asked to speak at like, the Williams College Club, you know, war night and stuff like that. And everyone wanted to hear from Charles go to hell Whittlesey. And so at that point, you know, even when he pushed back against that, people just didn't want to hear it. And so that's what I mean by the pressures of being a hero. He, he came back and was like, I want to talk about it. I want to tell you what it was like. I want to tell you what I went through. But it didn't go with being a hero. Like he gave speeches at first where he said, you know, the American soldier holds no animosity toward the Germans. You know, if an American met the Kaiser on the road, he would give him a cigarette. And people like booed at that. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to hear him just stand up and say, you know, fuck the Germans. We won. Rah, rah, America and sit back down. And I think it, it, to anyone that would be hard. But I think especially to a guy like Whittlesey, who was so smart and so kind and so thoughtful, that was completely excruciating. Yeah, I mean, this is a total non sequitur, but it's kind of related. I'm thinking of Bob Dylan. Yeah. I was just watching the documentary No Direction Home not yeah. too long ago. Have you seen it? Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but I, I it's on my list. Yeah, well, anyway, you, I'm sure you've probably at some point in your life, if you've been online, you've at some point come across like these video clips of Dylan from the 60s talking to the media. Yeah. So I have a point here. Um, and it's... It's this idea of being in a situation where you become uh, a figure of interest to the media and the culture. Yeah. And you get into a situation where people are telling you who you are over yes. and over and over again. And I think initially you can watch some of these clips where Dylan is just like, I mean, he's an odd character, no doubt about it. But, you know, in the situation that he was in then, where everybody's like, you're the voice of a generation, you know, you're the, you're the prophet. And, you know, just, everyone's just throwing all this shit on him. I can imagine how it could make you crazy. Yes. Um, you know, I think at first blush, you're like, wow, this Dylan guy's just nuts. He won't answer anybody's questions or he's being contentious just for the sake of being contentious. But I think the more that you think about it, you start to realize that it was a self-protective act. He was trying totally. to like keep his own mind without, you know, going crazy. Yeah. 
I, I think that's a really good connection. And I think, you know, so many of Dylan's like interview experiences read as him being so contemptuous of the media. And I think, you know, like you're saying, you know, at the beginning, like at first you're kind of like, what? Like everybody wants to talk to you. Isn't that, isn't that what we are supposed to want? Like you're getting all this attention, you're getting all this adulation. But like, I agree. I think, you know, it is kind of contemptible because it's not that, I don't know, I don't want to be one of these like, oh, the media people. But I think, you know, it's just very, very difficult for the media to really depict someone in a three-dimensional way. And I think, you know, if you're smart, you can feel it happening and you want to not let it happen. But it, it kind of, fame becomes this beast that, you know, you think it's like a horse that you're riding and then you realize it's more of, of sort of this runaway thing that you can't control. And I think that's pretty terrifying. Especially for, I mean, fame is, I think fame is, uh, has its has its problems no matter what, but especially I could imagine for somebody who's famous for doing stuff in a war. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be famous for that and to have been party to death and destruction and to have witnessed all this human suffering and catastrophe and then to come home and have everybody be clapping for you, like that's gotta yes. be a head spinner. Totally. And I think, you know, for, for some people, what's, what's, I think, intense about it is for some people it is and for some people it isn't. And I think just, again, with Whittlesey as a character, it was amazing that he was such a good leader and he was so effective when battle was going on, but he just couldn't readjust to life. And part of that is, you know, he was being treated with this truly extraordinary degree of scrutiny as a hero. So he wasn't just someone who could come back and kind of you know, see his wife and kids again and go back to his job and, and hopefully be left alone. He he was never left alone and he didn't have that kind of family support system. But I think it's another one of those experiences where you don't know if you can stand it till you stand it. And I think as much as we nowadays understand PTSD so much more than we did in the past, like in the past, they didn't even necessarily know it was a thing. We don't know how to treat it still. I mean, there's there's things, you know, we, we do what we can, but past a certain point, some people just seem to be able to re-enter quote-unquote society, and some people can't. And I think that's just, that's another of the, the sadnesses. And I say that not in any way to say, like, it's Whittlesey's fault at all. Um, to me, it seems more normal not to be able to recuperate your life. But I just, one, one more anecdote that I just blew my mind when I was writing is that they made a movie of The Lost Battalion, and it came out in 1919. And they asked as many of the surviving members of The Lost Battalion as they could find to be in it and to play themselves. So you have Whittlesey playing Whittlesey, and you have all these survivors, like a, not even a year after they've gone through this trauma being made to like reenact the trauma in front of a movie camera so that Hollywood can sell this film. And I, I just, I feel like that's to me a totally outrageous thing to do to people who've been through so much. Yeah. That's like tone deaf in the extreme. Like at least mm -hmm. like, I'm thinking, well, at least we've made some progress. I don't think that would happen today. So yeah, I hope not. <laughs> and I want, you know, I'm thinking too of like how they, They've had some success treating soldiers who are suffering from PTSD by giving them uh, MDMA. Yeah. And like in my head, I was like, we just needed to give Charles Whittlesey some ecstasy and maybe he could have <laughs> pushed through this. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, honestly, too, with like service animals and stuff like that, I, you know, I have a scene in the book where he meets Cherami again in, you know, a parade and he makes this kind of wild you know, because Cher Ami becomes a hero, too, and they tour her around, you know, to school children and to, to wounded soldiers as sort of like 
a little mascot or an example. And, you know, so he, he meets her in this parade again and he asks the officer and I just made this up. I, you know, this didn't happen. And he's like, can I, can I have her? Can I, you know, can I just keep her? Can I take her? And can she just live with me? Cause we kind of understand each other. And of course the officer, you know, who's in charge of her is like, ha ha ha. N- no, are you okay? And I think, you know, I'm not trying to say that would have fixed it, but I do think, you know, we do have that advanced understanding and a lot of people who, who have been through war do really benefit by having animals with them. And I, I just wonder too, if, you know, he had been at another time, if there might've been some stuff that would have worked for him. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, you have to, if if you have, I don't know, I'm thinking of like treatment options, but also just maybe like a different, a different world. If he could have just been himself in the world, it would have probably helped quite a lot. Um, Totally. Let me ask you about the research for this book. Um, You know, it's, it seems like so serendipitous and magical that you were, you stumbled into this incredible story. It's like, it's right there, you know? I mean, obviously you have to, you have to do it. You have to weave it all together, but like you must've been, especially as you got deeper into the research, energized by what you were finding. And, uh, you know, I think you've said it a little bit already, just amazed that this could all exist and you would have no knowledge of it. There's so many stories like this in the world that are just sitting there yeah. somewhere waiting to be, you know, relearned. Yes. I, I love the research phase for that reason. And, you know, obviously there's so many stories like that and I don't write novels about all of them. So, you know, it's, it's, I feel like it's gotta be this, like you said, magical pairing of subject and author. Like I feel, you know, I would never say I'm the only person who could have written this book. I think, you know, plenty of people probably could have, but I do feel like I was, supposed to find this story and I you know I don't know I think I I, one of the authors from the recent past who I really like is Christopher Lash who wrote um, a lot of different books but in the culture of narcissism which is super timely um, it came out in the 70s but it's like I recommend it now he calls the past a treasury like he doesn't say history but he says the past when I, I think that's a good distinction like history is not the past they're kind of different things but he calls the past a treasury of psychological and political material and he says he, he's very clear that he's not saying it teaches us lessons like he issues the word lessons but he does say that it can give us stuff to think about for the future and I think when I'm in that research phase, per your question, the way that I know that I'm sort of onto something or the way that I can kind of tell that like, okay, yeah, this is a story. This is a story I can tell. I, I know how I'm going to tell it. It is material that has that, you know, political and psychological treasury quality where, I, you know, I don't sit down and try to do my research so that I can write a book that speaks to like 2020 or like, you know, whatever the world is going to be like when it comes out. But I do hope it has, you know, resonances that make it not just like a quaint anecdote, but something that we can uh, find useful in interpreting the world that we're in. And, And this goes a little bit off from your question, but I think one of the things that I realized when I was researching, especially the Cher Ami stuff, was how many animals, not just pigeons, but, you know, dogs and horses and even pigs and even like small animals like field mice like spiders just like how the men you know in some cases used them but then also just befriended them and I think that kind of goes to 
to me, it's not a climate change book. You know, the words climate change don't appear in it, but it's a very, you know, Anthropocene book. It's a, it's a book that I think, I hope, you know, it makes me think of just our kind of twisted relationship to the natural world and the way that we forget that we are part of nature. And like you were saying at the beginning that, you know, often there is this human supremacy that's really unfortunate because all these other creatures are arguably just as worthy as us. We, you know, we put ourselves at the top of the pyramid typically, but that's just, you know, that's just like our opinion, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. So, you know, when I was researching that, I just was really struck, um, by the other animals. And like one, you know, specific research anecdote is again, Cherami's in the Smithsonian, you can go see her or, you know, you can see her when the pandemic's over and it's safe. Um, but she's there behind glass and she's right next to this dog, Sergeant Stubby, um, who was this like Boston Terrier mix, who was also attached to an army unit and, you know, just became this beloved symbol. Like the men just adored him. And he even, you know, he became trained so he could warn them against gas attacks um, he helped with the capture of a German soldier who was trying to, you know, sneak back and kill them. And he helped, you know, grab him with his teeth. And I just, I, I don't know. I just, I think my favorite thing about the research was just all these animals that helped. I'm not going to say fight the war because they didn't fight, but just assisted in the human cause. I, if I were a soldier, like, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure you probably played this game with yourself as you were researching and writing, but like, you try to imagine like, how would I function in yeah. this environment? And I think I would be the guy definitely crying in my sleep probably crying yeah. when i'm not sleeping and probably like i would adopt like a pet mouse and just fix yes. it on it <laughs> yes yeah and i mean i think you know that's one of the things i mentioned like even even spiders like they i think the men in the trenches were so like starved for a reminder of goodness in the world i mean when you consider it and and you kind of mentioned this like you're in the trenches you are with a bunch of other guys, like none of you have showered, it's cold, it's rainy, you know, your feet are probably rotting, you know, you've got trench foot, you might have gangrene, you, you know, there's, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, you're probably covered in body lice. I mean, just the, the list of things, like you probably had dysentery and like couldn't stop shitting yourself uncontrollably, you might have influenza. And so you just imagine the, the near constant suffering and then to see even like you're saying like a mouse just to to have that little reminder that there's love in the world and that you can give love and you can get love back i think they they really needed that yeah i mean uh, it's like they give uh you know they'll give like um homeless uh, cats and stuff to prisoners sometimes i think it reduces recidivism rates they've shown yeah you know like just to have something to care about that like returns affection and like is sort of uh you know what's the word i'm looking for not unpollutable you know what i mean like you can't yeah. uh, like they can't be corrupted you know yeah they're pure there's like a purity of an animal's love i think and you you want to be careful because you don't want to sentimentalize but i think there there really is that purity of their love and i think that's part of why i was excited to write from Jeremy's point of view is that you know she's a complicated character and she's not an angel but she really just does have this love of humans that endures even in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. Did you ever go see her in the Smithsonian? I did. I did at the very beginning. Um, you know, Brian, I, I want to say he turned in his poem. It was like the fall of 2013. And, you know, I, I am a professor and I'm very fortunate to have that sweet, sweet academic schedule where I get summers off. And, 
So that summer of uh, 2014, I went to Washington, D.C. Um, my friend Abby Beckel, who I, I run Rose Metal Press with, lives out there. And I was staying with her and I was giving a reading. Um, it was back in the O Democracy days, like the last time you and I talked on the show. And I you know, knew I was going to be there. And I was like, I've got to go see Shara Me. And I went and saw her. And it was really profound because, you know, pigeons, as far as we know, don't write. You know, they don't read and they don't write in the way that we recognize it. Um, so unlike the men who fought in the war, many of whom left behind poems and novels and diaries and memoirs, you know, pigeons didn't leave anything behind, but Cherami left her body behind. You know, she didn't choose to, but humans decided that she was going to. And so in a way, her body is sort of the text and, and you know, it is sort of a diary because when you look at her, you see her wounds and she's so small. I mean, she's pigeon sized, right? She just looks like a pigeon, but you can see um, she lost an eye. She was shot through the chest and she lost a leg. And that was one of the details early on that haunted me through the whole writing is that normally when a pigeon died in battle, which was often, um, they would just, you know, they'd just throw them away. They would just throw them in a mass grave. Like it wasn't a big deal. Or if a pigeon was wounded, they, they wouldn't try to fix it because there were so many other concerns. But they knew that Cherami was so important when she delivered her friendly fire message that they saved her and an army medic stitched her up. And when she recovered, they made her a tiny wooden leg um, to attach to her stump so that she could, you know, sort of hobble around. And they don't still have the wooden leg in the Smithsonian, but you can see her stump. And I think, I don't know, it was just really intense to look at her and, and just see what she went through. Wow. That's unbelievable. So do you, uh, have, like, do you have pigeons now? Are you, are you like, uh, are there pigeons on the roof of your apartment or house or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, not presently, but, um, you know, like, when I was writing it and you, you know, you want to be careful with the pathetic fallacy and you don't want to make yourself the center of nature. But, um, while I was drafting a pigeon couple moved in under the eaves, um, Martin and I live on the third floor of a condo in Chicago. And so it's, it's prime bird territory. And this pigeon couple moved in and built a nest and all the stuff that I've been reading about how pigeons behave, I got to see firsthand. And so they made a nest, they laid two eggs, which is typically what pigeons do. They almost always lay two eggs, you know, never one, always two. And then they do this really egalitarian parenting thing that I think, you know, human parents should, should probably take note, um, where the, the dad and the mom sort of equally tend to the eggs. They alternate sitting. Usually it's kind of like a day and night schedule um, so that one will sit and incubate and one will go out and like find food or get exercise. And then when the pigeons are hatched, the babies, they both can feed the babies. So they're not like mammals, you know, they don't have mammary glands, but they make milk, they make it in their throats and it's called pigeon milk. And it's this super nutritive substance and both the dad and the mom make it. So they take turns feeding the babies. And, you know, I read about it and I knew it was true, but I sort of couldn't believe it. And then I saw it happening and my mind was just blown by how loving the pigeons were to each other. Um, and so we named them, of course. They may have had their own names, for all I know, but we named them puns because it's funny and we're dorks like that. So we had Walter Pigeon was the dad and Coup d'etat was the mom. And then their babies were Molly Wingwald and Feather 
locklear and <laughs> they were adorable and they but they were wild we didn't try to keep them you know we respected their wildness and after you know they lived with us for a few months over the summer and then they just went back and rejoined the flock okay so you're not like you're not uh, sending messages with them or anything <laughs> no but i it's funny you mentioned that there's actually out you know in california there's this organization um it's in the bay area called palomacy pigeon and dove rescue and they specialize in rescuing um injured urban pigeons and then also pigeons who are abandoned or harmed by the pigeon racing industry or also by the pigeon food industry. Um, and so they rescue all these pigeons and then they have them for adoption. And I do admit to spending, um, I, I donate money to them and I donated a copy of Share on Me for their big auction happening in October. Um, but I spend a lot of time on their website looking at the pictures of the pigeons they have available. And I, I think Martin's worried that I might we might need to adopt some pigeons at some point. Martin being your husband. Yes, yes. I mean, he likes pigeons, but I'm not sure. He's he's not necessarily sure we need them in the house. So, you know, we'll see. It's an ongoing situation. It's a negotiation. Let me, mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you something. So we could, because pigeons can fly incredibly uh, long distances, like they're strong. Yes. Um, we could feasibly, you and I, like you're in Chicago, I'm in Los Angeles. Yes. We could train a pigeon to carry messages back and forth between our respective abodes. Yes, that's we could. that's so I could like if I, I like Kathleen, I could be like, let's get into an epistolary relationship where we're sending messages by bird. Yes, <laughs> like you could do that. And do people do that? Are there hobbyists who are like, yeah, I have a pen pal or, you know, yeah. some, some sort of friend and we only communicate by pigeon. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know. I hope there are. And, and the way it would have to work, just to, to be clear, um, you know, pigeons, they, they are not a two-way communication. So what we would have to do is train the pigeons and you would probably need, and this is what they kind of did in the war, you would want like a basket, like a basket full of pigeons, um, you know, maybe like half a dozen to a dozen and they would be trained. And what we would do is at the beginning of our correspondence, you know, we would get our respective pigeons, like my Chicago pigeons would be trained to come back to where I lived. And I would have to get those like dozen pigeons out to you in California. And then you would do the same thing. And then we could send each other that many messages, but they can only go one way. So like my pigeon, you know, would leave your place and come back to my place with your message. And then I would take one of your pigeons and send my reply and that pigeon would go to your place. So we could we could do a correspondence, but it would have to be, you know, it would have to be several bird just to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to get into this and then feel let down or feel misled, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was, I was hoping we could just like the same pigeon just back and <laughs> yeah. forth. I know that would be the dream, but we, nobody's, nobody's managed to do that quite yet. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm just truth in advertising when it comes to pigeons. No, I'm glad we said that. Cause I'm sure there are listeners out there who are going to be yes. uh, trying this. Out. Yeah, totally. So I want to ask, like, this is maybe a common question about research, but it's one that I always feel drawn to because I'm kind of projecting myself onto it, but you, you, you know, you read this poem from one of your students, you start reading Wikipedia, you immediately realize that you have a book on your hands and then you get going into research, which is this nebulous term. Um, I'm imagining and correct me if I'm wrong, that so much, you know, most of it is, is intuitive. You start reading, you start kind of following your nose, picking up books, clicking on links, taking notes, gathering information. This went on for you for years. 
right? This is yeah. not just like a couple of months. This is like two, three years you're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. But- yeah. And, and if I, you know, the, the way that I usually do research is I have like, before I start writing, I just let myself research. And that's why it's my favorite phase is because it's so easy. <laughs> like, honestly, um, it's work, but it's kind of lazy work. It's kind of like you said, it's intuitive. And so you can kind of just be like, woof, this is all good. Like, any, you know, just call it all in, just check it all out. And, you know, so I would say the first chunk of research for me is very like anything goes, you know, don't say no to anything. Yes. And, um, but after a few months of that, I, I would say I do pause. And I think, you know, to, to be clear for me, and I'm only speaking for myself, there's the research phase, but it's not entirely distinct from the writing phase. So, you know, at some point, a few months in, I will pause and think like, okay, I'm, you know, this is a little too scattershot. I can't, I could spend literally the rest of my life just reading about World War One and pigeons, right? I mean, I would never exhaust the materials. I could do that truly forever till I died. But that's not practical. That's not a way to finish a book. And so, you know, at that point, I tend to pause and think of my characters and start, I guess what I would say is the research becomes more embodied and I start to realize like, all right, I need to not just find stuff because it's interesting, but think of like, is this something that Whittlesey would need to care about? Is this something Cherami would have a way to know? Um, And that then starts helping me kind of go from this like massive panoramic view to a little more you know, telescope and eventually to a microscope. So it's, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, research happens all the way over here, you know, from 2014 to 2016 and then writing happens, you know, in 2016. It's, it, it does become a little more coextensive past a certain point. Well, you have your characters that are sort of grounding things for you. Yes. But you're also not, it doesn't sound like you're drafting the novel until two or three years in, like it's just the, the, yeah. the phases of operation are distinct, but you, yes. you're thinking about the framework of character and, or the framework of your story vis-a-vis the characters. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I always admire writers who, who can just sort of like hear voices or just start freestyling. Um, but usually there is like a pretty hard pivot from, almost exclusively research to drafting that is an outline. Like I have to outline. I cannot, I mean, never say never, you know, I, this is my third novel, so it's what I've done, but it doesn't mean it's what I'll always do, but it's hard for me to see changing. Um, I have to outline. I just, I can't like after doing so much research and knowing I have a specific story to tell, I, I do sit down and get pretty hardcore about like, okay, you know, from alternating point of views, this is probably how many chapters I'll need. Like, these are the major incidents. I'm going to have to talk about this. I can't leave this out. I'm going to need something to happen here. Um, and I always, always, always know how my book is going to end, um, which I know I, I think some people find that like a bummer or like not mysterious or whatever, but I love it. It's, it's, you know, I need to have that North star to navigate by. And what will often happen is I'll think I know how something's going to end and then I'll get there and I'll change it. But I don't think I could like go the distance or like execute the journey without having a destination in mind, even if the destination shifts by the time I get there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same way. And I think that one of the beauties of uh, writing historical fiction is that it offers you 
like so uh, you know i guess maybe a, in the best case scenario it offers you this narrative framework it's like kind of ready made if you can see it you have to sometimes you have to suss it out but yeah. you know like the raw materials of your story were there and then you have to go in and um you know fill in the blanks and do the cosmetic work and all the rest but um i can see how i don't know there's a part of me that envies historical fiction writers for that reason because you know, if you can be fortunate enough to find the right story to tell, one that really resonates for you and one that hasn't been told a million times, you've at least got like that kind of like, um, you know, that architecture built or ready for you to, to deal with. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's part of why I like historical fiction. It just, it's, um, I, it's a good blend of sort of like nerdy left brainness and then you know free for all creative right brainness i mean i know the the brain thing is very pop science but i think for me like that's the best way to describe it like you have you know that structure but then you also have that imagination within the structure and i think you know i also do poetry and i teach poetry and i i teach a class on um obstructions and you know i teach the lars von trier movie the five obstructions where he I don't know if you've seen it, but he he takes this um, really, really famous film, The Perfect Human by Jorgen Leth, who's this, you know, great, um, almost like new wavy filmmaker from the 60s. And he has him remake the the movie in the 2000s with like five different sets of obstructions. And, you know, it is very formulaic, but within that, it's like astonishing what it pushes Leth to come up with. And I that's one of the things I try to show my students. It's not the only way to write, but that sometimes having that pretty like set parameter at first can seem like, well, I know how this is going to end or I know how this is going to go. But then once you start playing around within that parameter, you realize you sort of have this infinite freedom, even in the face of constraint. And to me, that's, you know, one of my favorite ways to create anything. Yeah, no. And it's interesting too, like to, to think of this material and then to consider the way that you chose to approach it. Um, you know, there's a part of me that could imagine like, uh, I'm thinking of Eric Larson. It feels like the kind of material that you could take in the direction of, of his work, you know, like yeah. devil in the white city. And, yeah. um, what's the one that he did in the garden of beasts, I think was the one he yeah. did about world war two where, you know, he finds these historical figures who maybe in their time were, uh, you know, very uh, mainstream and well-known, but who are lost to history. And he kind yeah. of resuscitates them and uses them as a vehicle to tell like more macro level narratives. And, you know, you could have gone there. Like I could see how this could have been like a work of straight history or, his, you know, yeah. historical nonfiction, but you know, you don't get a pigeon narrator that way. I don't think. No, <laughs> no, no. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, had so much fun with this book. I, I guess technically it's in a way, I don't, I don't know. I've been seeing how people have reacted and I've, I've been very grateful for, you know, the attention it's received. And for the most part, it seems, you know, knock on wood, well received. It hasn't been out a month yet, but um, the people who don't like it tend to not like the pigeon and just think it's a little over the top and the people who do like it are willing to go with it. But one of the things that I'm, I'm struck by is that people sometimes point out that it's technically like a supernatural book which they're not wrong i mean it's you know the big genre i guess is historical fiction or literary fiction but it is supernatural because Cherami is narrating from beyond the grave so it's like not only are you getting 
a pigeon story, you're really getting a ghost story because she's been dead, you know, for almost a hundred years. You know, when she's in the Smithsonian, the occasion of the telling is that it's the hundredth year anniversary of this mission. She flew in the pocket, but then, you know, she died in 1919. So, you know, at the time of the telling, she's almost a century deceased and yet she's talking to us. And so, um, yeah, so the, the people who point out that it's supernatural or call it a ghost story, it's not necessarily how I thought of it when I was writing it, but that is correct. What about the sales process? You know, because it's always, you know, the fiction market is always fickle unless you're um, somebody who has sold a ton of books or whatever, have this big, you know, high media profile. Um, but, you know, a pigeon narrator, I can imagine uh, being an agent and being like, well, I mean, did, or, or being a writer and being like, I don't know if there's going to be a market for this. Like, can you talk about how it was received during that stage of yeah. things? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, so my, my agent is Lisa Bankoff and she's phenomenal. She's, she's a great agent and she's also a great editor. And so, um, she's a really sensitive reader and very astute. And, you know, I think like most agents these days, you know, she does a lot of working with her authors to make sure the book is edited and in great shape before it goes out. And, you know, even very early on, I mean, she was never anti-pigeon. She was always like, do your thing. I believe in you. I support you. But when we were, you know, getting closer, like as she and I were going back and forth and editing it, um, she, she did kind of give me a heads up. She's like, I think, you know, it's a strong manuscript. I love the book. I believe in it, but it might be too weird. She was like, some people are just going to find it too bizarre and too much of a reach. And they're just not going to go with the animal narrator. So I didn't love hearing that, you know, cause I'm like, Oh, free your mind, you know, like, why can't you just listen to a pigeon? Um, but I think it was really good of her to manage my expectations that way, because we did, you know, I won't name names or anything, but we did get some of the rejections were just flat out. I don't like animal narrators. I, I think they're dumb. I, I don't like them, um, which is fine. You know, you don't want somebody to say yes, who doesn't believe in what you're doing. Um, but I will say that, um, Margo Weissman, who is my editor at Penguin immediately got it. And she, she loved it. She was all in for the pigeon narrator right from the outset. I think that's, you know, the thing she loved most about it. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but, um, she's a fellow animal lover and, you know, I think she really gravitated toward that. And I just remember that, you know, on the, on the day she was making the offer, she had like a witty line in the, the offer letter to Lisa and I that said, um, you know, penguins and pigeons, it seems like a match that was made in heaven. And I just was like, yeah, it is kind of auspicious that my pigeon book would come out with a publisher that's named after another bird. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that's been awesome. What about film rights? I mean, I can see there being a cinematic element to this and I'm thinking yeah. of a CGI pigeon, unless there could be a real pigeon, unless you have a, a real pigeon in mind to play the role <laughs> of Cherami. Yeah, I... um. I don't. I think, you know, a CGI pigeon would be great. I, you know, we haven't, I know Lisa's trying to sell film rights and I can't say too much about that, but I definitely think that it would be a really, really good movie. Like I've, I've sold the rights to Lillian and that's in development. So I've, I've been having a good experience with that. And I think, I don't know, I think especially, I don't know if anybody's listening, but I think it could be a really interesting pandemic film project too, because I think you could do, because there would have to be so much CGI and stuff, I think it could be made interestingly now. And I have a friend, Clark, who works in um, 
you know, special effects and stuff. And at first I was sort of like, oh, I don't want it to be, like, maybe it'd have to be animated. I don't know if it could be CGI. And he's like, no, we could do, he's like, you could have the best CGI pigeon. You would not even know the difference. It would look so real. Um, and I think, you know, I can say, this is just pure fantasy. And I've, I've written about this, um, that my, my ideal casting would be um, Jason C goal would be Whittlesey because it needs to be somebody who's got gravitas but is a little bit you know humble and not too you know matinee perfect um and then my my fantasy would be to have Phoebe Waller-Bridge play um Cherami because she's British and so she would have to have an accent and she's pretty witty and she's pretty keen and so I think that would be my my bit of dream casting so Phoebe if you're listening you know, I she, think she is, is. She is listening, by the way. A she's a, she's a okay, huge, <laughs> yeah. She's a huge fan of the show. She's a huge fan of other people. Yeah, excellent. Uh, um, but that's that's what I would want. Has Mike Tyson read the book? Not to my knowledge, but I, you know, I would love it if he would. And also, you know, I know, um, you know, if he wanted to like read it while he was working out or something, it's an audio book, so he could listen to it while he's, you know, in the gym. I think he would like it. I think he would be moved. I think so too. I think so too. I think anybody who loves pigeons would probably, I think if you already like pigeons, this is for you. And if you think you don't like pigeons, it could change your mind. All right. Well, Kathleen, I am uh, grateful to you for taking the time to talk. I'm, I'm glad to connect with you again. And I congratulate you on the success of this book. And are you working on another thing? Are you just enjoying this one? Or are you, are you at work on another book? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, well, th first, thanks for having me. And it's so good to be back. And yes, I am working on another um, historical fiction. And it is about a silent movie star um, from, you know, the very, very early days of Hollywood from about 1916 to about 1930. So stay tuned. This is your era. This is the, this yes. is like, like this period in uh, early 20th century American life, right? It's my jam. I love it. Okay. Well, great to talk with you and uh, hang in there during the pandemic. You doing okay in Chicago? I guess you're like teaching from home and all that kind of stuff or? Yeah, yeah. I feel really lucky to be in Chicago. I keep thinking of you guys out there in California and it's, you know, it's a little cold and rainy here, but it, it feels like it would be bonkers to complain. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I, I'm excited for the pandemic to be over, but so far, so good, I guess. All right. Well, great to talk with you. Congrats again. And uh, enjoy, you know, I guess not book tour. Enjoy your, like, round of podcast interviews, <laughs> whatever <Yes>. you're doing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you. Stuff like this is so much fun. It was so fun to, to spend some time chatting with you. So thank you for the opportunity. All right, that is Kathleen Rooney. Her novel is called Share a Me and Major Whittlesey. It is available now from Penguin Books. You can find Kathleen on the internet. Her website is KathleenRooney.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Kathleen M. Rooney. She's also on Facebook. I think she's got a Tumblr, and uh, she's on Goodreads. The novel, once again, is called Share Me and Major Whittlesey, available now from Penguin Books. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available for free. It's a listener-supported program. If you listen regularly and you like the show, throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget you can get Other People gear. You want a t-shirt? They're really good t-shirts. I'm telling you, they're soft. You can get a sweatshirt, a hoodie, tank top, 
just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Look over in the left sidebar. You'll see a T-shirt. Click on it. Get some apparel. This program has its own app. The Other People with Brad Listy app, it too, is free. Go get the app. It's available where apps are available. It's a good app. It's a good way to listen. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also participate in the uh, hashtag where I listen. We've been doing this thing where listeners send in photos of where they are when they listen to this show. Where are you in space? Tell us. You can DM the show on Twitter or on Instagram. You can also email me a photo or photos. You can send a selfie or not. It's up to you. But let us know where you listen. It's fun. Check out the show's Instagram to see uh, pictures from listeners sharing where they are when they listen. It's kind of cool. I don't know who's on the show next time. Oh, if you want to read my blog, it's uh, bradpocalypse.blogspot.com. Find out what's going on. There should be an episode next week. That's the best I can tell you. I'm not on top of my shit. I got, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Things are crazy. Can't breathe in LA. Okay. (laughs) 